Good afternoon and welcome to the launch of our report, uh, UK Regulation After Brexit. Thanks very much for tuning in um, today. Um, I'm Hussein Kassim, I'm Professor of Politics at the University of East Anglia, and I'm also a Senior Fellow at UK and Changing Europe. Um, I'm one of the three editors of the report, um, together with Sean Innes from um, the Centre for Competition Policy and Andy Jordan at um, Brexit and Environment, also at UEA. Um, I'm one of 30 contributors to the report, and I'm delighted that we've been able to assemble such a cast of of specialists. Um, I'm, I'm extremely proud of, um, of the work they've all done. Um, I'll, I'm, I'll be chairing the launch. Um, and I'm delighted to be joined by my three colleagues, uh, Professor Catherine Barnard from the University of Cambridge, also a senior fellow at uh, UK and Change in Europe, Charlie Burns at the University of Sheffield, and Sarah Hall at the University of Nottingham, again, another, uh, another senior fellow. Um, they also contributed to, to the report. And um, we're joined by our special VIP guest, uh, Peter Foster, who's public um, policy editor at the FT. He's going to respond uh, to us at the end. Um, this is a running order. Um, I'm very conscious it's an online event, and so we want to move briskly. We've got an, an hour to, to share with you. Um, I'll say a few words about the report. I'll then hand on to Charlie and then to Sarah and to Catherine, and finally uh, to Peter. Um, we're going to have an opportunity for questions at the end, so please do, your, do send your questions through using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. I'll, I'll sort of stockpile them and then pick a few at the end to pose to our, our panellists. Um, on the technicalities, I don't think you have to worry about, about muting, um, but um, I'm just going to say that if, if in the likely event that we that the, the, the power, um, the, the plug is pulled, we'll all try and get back as quickly as possible, so please um, tune in again. And I should also say that we're uh, we're recording. If you want to, um, if you want to um, to get a copy of the report, I'll tell you how to do so at the um, at the end. Okay. So first question: Why did we why did we um, write the report? So the first of January two thousand and twenty one was historic. It was the first day following the end of the transition period. Uh, regulatory responsibilities were transferred wholesale from the EU to the UK after more than four decades of, of UK participation in EU collective governance, of sharing regulatory tasks with the, with the EU and the other member states, and a co-evolution of policy and regulation in many, many fields, so a very intricate and complex uh, system. Um, there are also new regulatory tasks imposed by the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, um, by the deal, as it were. That's also um, important not to lose sight of. We thought it'd be really important to map what had changed in terms of UK um, regulation. That's less visible than, than the negotiations or, or delayed lorries at the border. And we thought it'd be, it was important to look across a range of diverse policy areas and sectors, so economic, um, trade, etc., environment, immigration, workers' uh, rights, to get a sense of what, what had changed and what remained the same. We asked ourselves three questions. Um, we looked at, at the level of policy. We um, were interested in investigating the extent to which um, the government had committed itself to change or continuity. Um, we were curious about the regulatory tasks that were given to UK bodies. Were they the function? Were they all of the functions um, previously performed by EU bodies, or just a selection of those? Which did the UK um, government choose to um, to, you know, to return to the UK or to create for UK bodies? Um, were these regulatory tasks entrusted to existing bodies or to new um, regulators? How well equipped were those and how well resourced? That's, that was our second set of questions. We also asked ourselves about the long-term prospects. If the aim of, um, of the withdrawal from the, from the, um, from the EU was to de-Europeanise um, UK regulation, to de-Europeanise UK regulation, um, to exercise UK regulatory autonomy, has that been achieved? 
And is it a likely prospect? In other words, are there other, other constraints um, that are likely to prevent the UK from diverging from using its, um, its um, retrieved, if you like, regulatory sovereignty? So what did we find? Well, very briefly, I'm just going to give you, um, give you four sets of findings um, that you'll find um, yeah, in the conclusion to the report, but, um, but obviously these are sort of running themes throughout all of the contributions. With the exception of immigration and possibly agriculture, where change has been signaled but has yet to be um, fully enacted, there's strong policy continuity on the domestic front. Um, EU policy was rolled over into um, UK law, um, and there was limited change um, to EU regulations retained in UK law, apart from the statutory instruments used to, um, to uh, change references from um, EU agencies and authorities to, to UK bodies. What's important not to lose sight of, however, are the rights and freedoms in trade with the EU, which, which vanished in many, in many sectors. In aviation, for example, although there's a sort of continu continuity in terms of, of sort of liberal policy, what has been lost is the ability of UK airlines to fly between EU member states or from EU member states to other, to, to other countries and certainly to perform domestic services. And we thought it was important to keep an eye on, on, the, on those things um, because a, a strictly um, domestic focus um, would, um, would lose those. Um, but also new obligations were imposed as a consequence of the trade and cooperation agreement. So that's the first finding. The second is that UK regulators were not um, especially well prepared for um, the transfer, and there are um, significant governance gaps in a number of, of domains. Um, I'm not going to preempt um, Charlie on this, um, but um, there, there are key sectors where this is very much the case, where the regulator is not actually yet in place. There's also wider questions about the extent to which UK regulators have the powers and um, have the powers and responsibilities um, that their um, that, that, that their equivalent um, EU bodies are possessed, um, and what the impact of um, losing access to EU instruments, um, which were sort of particularly effective in in sort of transnational um, areas, um, um, loss of, of access to database to expertise. It's unclear whether they um, whether they are or can be. Uh, recreated to, despite um, the best intentions in many areas of, um, of London. The third finding is one of unfinished business. Um, we, you, there's been there's a lot of talk about how the, um, the Brexit deal was ready, how it would all be over, um, how the, you know, the 1st of, of January would really um, would um, announce a new era of, of change. Um, but actually what we discover is all of that is true but the adjustment of the regulatory settlement is far from over. There's lots of unfinished business deriving either from the terms of the um, trade and cooperation agreement, which leave areas, for their, um, areas where there are um, agreement between the two sides that are pending, there are transitional arrangements, there are other kinds of um, open issues, um, which will take time to resolve. And it's important also to, to recognize that um, the report itself uh, sorry, the, the, the agreement itself will be reviewed every five years. I mean, this is a sort of major, you know, possibility for resetting an amendment and, 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 and all kinds of other things. Um, the other, um, the, the fourth finding um, relates to de-Europeanisation. And we argue in the report for all kinds of reasons, and each sort of contributor sort of reflects on this, that there are actually limited prospects for de-Europeanisation. Some of those uh, relate directly to the terms of the, tra the trade and cooperation agreement, um, you know, where there, are, um, where there are constraints imposed by 
um, by non-aggression clauses and, 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 and other sort of commitments um, therein, rebalancing and, and all of that. Um, but there, there are the wider sources of constraint too. In many sectors, there are wider international regimes, laws and conventions that constrain the extent to which um, signatory states can actually um, sort of you know, deviate from exist, existing policy. There's sort of um, a, um, a constraint um, imposed on, uh, on sort of latitude. Um, but there's also the case that the EU is a standard setter in many areas, in digital regulation, for example. Um, and there are, of course, sunk costs. And, and David Bailey in his chapter um, about trading goods um, writes about you know, the, the way in which you know, businesses are actually um, you know, committed to invested in a particular regulatory system, and that's very difficult to, to move without making them competitive. So those are our four our four findings. So um, I'm now going to pass over to um, Charlie, who um, is going to talk about environment, I think. Thanks for saying sorry, I had that moment of where's the, where's the mute <laughs> to stop you shouting at me, you're on mute. Uh, you're on mute. Um, uh, so thank you very much for that. Um, the environment is quite an interesting area to look at in this context because it wasn't really a major topic of debate during the referendum campaign, but then very quickly became a focus of concern in the aftermath of the referendum, um, where there were concerns expressed by both businesses and um, environmental NGOs that we would see environmental regulations watered down in the UK to secure some kind of competitive advantage once we left the European Union. And that has potentially negative environmental impacts, but that also creates uncertainty for businesses over the long term. So some work we did on climate change, where we spoke to key stakeholders, one of the messages we got from business was that they were really concerned about the lack of certainty about the regulatory framework and the investment climate, particularly for, for example, decarbonisation. So the Theresa May's government was very keen to head off some of those concerns about environmental regulation. Um, and at the same time, recognised that the environment was going to be an area that would be hugely impacted by Brexit. So the National Audit Office back in 2017 estimated that DEFRA, I think, was the second most impacted department in government because it covers environment, food, um, farming and um, fisheries and agriculture. Um, so Michael Gove quickly made a commitment to a green Brexit and claimed that once we left the EU that the UK would become an environmental superpower um, and brought forward a host of um, proposals and legislation to try and give effect to that idea of the green Brexit. So first of all, the 25 year environment plan was brought forward, which sets some long term ambitions. Uh, Theresa May pledged to um, the UK to uh, zero carbon by 2050. Um, and we saw, as Hussein already mentioned, the move to sort of plug those potential um, gaps emerging in environmental legislation through the sort of copy and paste exercise so that we now have this new body of retained EU environmental law. There was also the proposal of an environment bill, uh, which amongst other things establishes an office for environmental protection, which is designed to try and replace some of the monitoring and implementation and enforcement functions that we had as EU members through the Commission and the Court of Justice. Those steps meant that in essence, very little changed on the 1st of January this year. So there is a story of continuity there. And the key question is what happens now? Um, and how has the trade and cooperation agreement changed that context um, as we move forward? And on the one hand, the TCA does provide some 
reinforcement of that idea of a green Brexit as it includes the principle of environmental non-aggression that Hussein mentioned. It also includes a principle of progression. So it simultaneously says that states shouldn't weaken environmental policy, but the EU and the UK are committed to trying to improve environmental policy. And it also provides for scope um, at the international level. However, the ring fencing parts, uh, sorry, the non-regression part um, of the treaty's ring fence. So it's non-regression as it relates to um, environmental protection in relation to trade and investment only. The process for resolving disputes between the EU and the UK is complex and relatively weak. Um, the Environment Bill, which was a key part of the Green Brexit strategy, has been kicked into the long grass again, so it hasn't been adopted. There is an interim um, Office for Environmental Protection up and running, but there are ongoing concerns about how independent that is, about whether or not it can properly plug that governance gap that people were talking about as we left the EU. And the government, um, the other thing sort of the government has to think about is recovering from the pandemic, and it's committed to a green recovery, but there are ongoing concerns about that because more money is being put into road building, for example, than into the green recovery. And there are long term concerns about the funding of the regulatory agencies that have to do the monitoring and implementation work. So, for example, in this country, um, funding for environmental regulation fell 57 percent between 2009 and 2019. If you take flood defences out of that um, uh, calculation and we were putting less money into environmental protection during 2016 and 2017 than the average in the EU. So yes we have a story of continuity, there are minimum standards in place and that has been reinforced by the TCA but there are concerns about how genuine the government's commitment is to this and whether or not the resources, the expertise and the spending that we need on regulatory agencies is in place and at that point I'll stop and I'll hand over to Sarah. Great. Um, thanks, Charlie. So um, the first thing I wanted to do is take a step back and, and think about um, Brexit and regulation at a slightly more general level. And um, because I think it's not only the case that um, Brexit has ushered in regulatory changes in specific ways that are set out in fantastic detail in the report, but also that Brexit has changed the way we think about regulation. So um, regulation has become a much more kind of politicised um, area. There's much more public news written about regulation. Um, so I think it's really important to think about how um, regulation has risen up the agenda and has in itself been changed in the way we talk about it in kind of public and, and popular parlance as a result. I think within all that um, hurly-burly, it's actually quite important not to lose sight of what regulation's for. Um, and it, in many sectors, it's about really important fundamentals about safety, order and control. So, for example, in services, I don't think it's unreasonable that, that a nation state would want to know that medics are qualified to a certain standard or that lawyers operate to a certain standard. And similarly, if you think about road haulage, it makes sense that countries might want to know that lorries meet certain safety standards and they know what are in the trucks on their road. So I think Brexit throws up this really interesting disjuncture where um, regulation, which can be seen as quite dry and technical, has on the one hand become really um, politicised in important ways, but that at the same time, we can sometimes lose sight of, of what regulation is, is for, particularly in terms of the um, run up to the TCA. 
Um, the second point that I wanted to make about regulation is that I think regulation in terms of rules and what's set down in, in the TCA and through regulatory bodies is only part of the picture and, and regulation is a set of practices and activities and a lot about a lot about what happens in regulatory spaces is how it's implemented and how things are worked out and tested in practice. Um, I think this is really important in the context of the pandemic and the um, regulatory shift that the UK has undergone within a COVID pandemic. So here I'm thinking particularly about things like um, business travel and mobility, which Catherine may, may touch on, which are essentially in cold storage just at the moment, um, although they are um, really super complex um, elements of um, the TCA. I think as well it's important to think about regulation as a set of practices because it's also often the case that the devil is in the detail in terms of what regulation means and what some of the implications could be, particularly for, for businesses. Um, so one of the major changes in transportation, which um, we've read about um, in the newspaper and, and Peace Force is an amazing um, journalism on this, is around the paperwork that's required um, at ports for um, lorries to move um, GB EU. Um, this sounds quite technical, but actually when you think about it in practice, you realise that, for example, car production lines rely on a ready supply of parts and actually delays of only minutes can cost thousands of pounds in terms of um, supply chains. In the report, we also talk about um, road transport regulations and how the changes for road haulage um, have important implications for manu manufacturing supply chains. But again, the devil's really in the detail. It's about how many drop-offs a lorry can do in the EU, whether the lorry's coming back full or empty, etc. I think responding to some of um, Hussein's um, earlier comments, um, the importance of attending to regulation as, as a practice was really made clear in the run-up to um, midnight on the 31st of December, where just days before um, the haulage industry was presented with a set of detailed updated advice about how the EU-UK trade border would operate. I think it ran to over 300 pages. Um, and for businesses who often crave stability and predictability, that's been very challenging um, to deal with. Um, the final point, the final kind of broader point that I wanted to make is that I think it's important to set changes in the UK-EU regulatory landscape within an international context. And a number of um, contributions to the report um, do this. So um, a lot of the debate in the run-up to Brexit and in the run-up to the agreement of the TCA was the extent to which domestic regulatory control would be um, obtained by the UK um, through the deal. But I think there are some key sectors where actually the amount of domestic regulatory control any one nation state can have is quite significantly limited because the strong international regulation. So the maritime sector in the report would be an example and financial services would be um, another good example. So here the UK at the moment is currently making and quite strong plays around the fact that um, post-Brexit, um, the UK will be a global rather than European financial centre and is, is seeking, I think, to make claims around its ability to set international standards um, as well as EU-UK regulations through things like, in the case of financial services, um, its role on the Financial Stability Board.
So um, on those um, broader three points, I'll hand over to Catherine. Uh, Catherine, we can't hear you, I don't think. Thanks very much. I'm just getting the slides up and, and functioning. Can you see the slides the same? Yes, can, yeah. Lovely. Well, thank you very much indeed for asking me to participate in this. Um, I've been asked to talk a bit about immigration and a bit about workers' rights. Now, immigration is obviously at first sight a case of significant regulatory rupture. And workers' rights is, at the moment, um, a site of the dog that hasn't barked. And I'm going to look at those two rather contrasting um, perspectives. So as we know about immigration, immigration was the biggest reason um, to, uh, which led to a vote to leave. The diagram on the left shows you um, it was done the day after the referendum and the larger the font, um, the more significant the reason was to motivate, motivate a leave vote. And it's quite clear that immigration and taking back control of borders um, was the overwhelming reason for voting leave, or at least that was what was reported at the time. And so those well-known aspects of free movement, um, free movement of workers, freedom of establishment and free movement of services in, and free movement in a limited way of students and persons of independent means, all of that had to be turned off. The government were committed to stopping free movement. And so we knew that there would be a significant regulatory rupture. But, but things aren't as straightforward as you might think, because in fact, now immigration is covered by three separate legal regimes, which mixes up continuity and discontinuity and brutal complexity. The continuity is on the left-hand side of my diagram, and I will start with that. And this is um, the EU Settled Status Scheme for all of those who'd arrived in the UK before the 1st of January 2021. And the detail of the rights there um, can be found in the withdrawal agreement. And this is broadly continuity because it's very much premises, premised on EU free movement rights the Citizens' Rights Directive. Um, the only thing that you haven't got is the onward right to um, free movement. And actually the EU Settled Status Scheme um, has generated a lot of interest. We already know that well over 4 million people have applied for settled status. We also know how little we know about how many EU migrants are in fact in the UK. To give you an example, the Home Office has already reached 152% of the rate of applications for, of Bulgarian nationals. In other words, we grossly underestimated how many Bulgarians were in the UK. It's meant to be quick and easy. And so there's a very interesting case study of um, online applications. And it's meant to be very easy to do, as easy as it, um, and it should take you no longer to do than the time it would take to make a cup of tea. Hence the government's advert, which is on the left. But in fact, what we have discovered, and these are the groups that I'm working with as part of the UK and Changing Europe programme, is that in respect of the low paid, low skilled, um, uh, IT illiterate um, migrants, 
those who've got dementia, those who are struggling with their education, it is proving very, very difficult. And so this is going to be a real challenge for regulators. Will they really turn off um, the settled status scheme on the 30th of June, as they say they will? Um, this is where the new quasi-regulator kicks in, the Independent Monitoring Authority, which has just been set up. The Independent Monitoring Authority is meant to be like uh, the Commission in the UK with similar investigative powers. Um, it's only just beginning to get up and running. Um, and so it's too early to tell whether it's going to be a watchdog with teeth or whether, in fact, it's going to be a very quiet pussycat. It is encouraging that this morning um, the um, UK government has launched another um, campaign to encourage those with settled status to apply for settled status by the deadline um, of the 30th of June. So that's actually where we've got continuity and a new regulator. Um, where we have got significant discontinuity is in respect of anyone arriving in the UK after the um, 1st of January, and they will be subject to the UK's full visa um, regime. Um, and there are a variety of visas, including the Global Talent Visa, which is more generous, in fact, than the old tier two. But, but don't underestimate the sheer cost of applying for a visa and also the significant costs involved with the health care um, surcharge. Where there is dramatic complexity, that comes with what the consequences of the TCA. So that's the middle bit of the diagram in the blue. Now, the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, um, allows for um, mobility, what's called um, uh, mode four or FIFO mobility, fly in, fly out mobility. But the rules are fiendishly complicated. And in the couple of minutes that I've got, I cannot begin to start giving you the detail. But just to give you a flavor, um, there are different modes in which are the ways in which services can be provided. But mode four, the FIFO mode, which is the one that most people are interested in about to what extent does that replace um, free movement? It does not at all. They are completely different. There are very, very limited um, grounds on which people can go to another country or to come to the UK taking advantage of the provisions in the TCA. You can go to use some of the jargon terms as um, an independent professional or as a contract service provider or the slightly more generous short term business visitor. But um, essentially, it doesn't help lots of those groups who are really complaining loudly at the moment, musicians, um, those in the fashion industry, those groups that Peter have been good at um, ventilating their concerns, because this is not free movement. And the rules here, they run to the best part of 300 pages in the TCA, are very complex indeed. Finally, on workers. Is workers going to be an area where there are dramatic changes? Well, again, the TCA is complicated here, um, and I can go into the detail later on if there's time. But in essence, it was widely thought that once we left the EU, that um, certain types of EU-based regulation were for the chop. In particular, the rules on working time, uh, the rules on agency work, 
perhaps the rules on information and consultation in the context of collective redundancies. Of course, the EU was alert to that because the Brexiteurs had been jumping up and down and saying that's what we're going to do. And so here you've got significant attempts by the EU through the TCA to stop um, significant changes from occurring. So while the TCA makes nice noises about each side, each side can set their own standards. In fact, if there is um, regression from existing standards in a manner which affects trade or investment, that will trigger a whole bunch of remedies provisions um, in the TCA, which do eventually lead to the possibility of um, tariffs being imposed against the UK. And here on the right hand side, this is the rebalancing um, stuff that took so much time in the run up uh, to the final uh, dark days of the negotiation of the treaty in respect to rebalancing, rebalancing concerns future developments, non-regression concerns existing, rebalancing concerns future um, developments. If the future developments lead to material, note the higher threshold, there's no reference to materiality here in respect of non-regression. If it leads to material impacts on trade or investment, then there is a brutal process for imposing um, sanctions. Just to give you a flavor of it, essentially what you have is um, brief consultation. If the consultations don't produce an outcome that the complaining side wants, they can introduce tariffs straight away. These are lightning tariffs. And then, only then can the losing party go to an arbitration tribunal They've got a quick period of time to sort out the matter. And all the while these tariffs can be applied if um, it turns out that uh, the EU has got it wrong and misapplied the tariffs, then the UK can retaliate with its own tariffs. So you've got messy tit for tat. Bottom line is we thought very early on, in part thanks to a story that Peter ran, that indeed the 48 hour working week would be torn up and that this would trigger the rebalancing mechanism that I mentioned here. In fact, change of Secretary of State, he starts saying, mm, I don't think that's a good idea. And he's now come out to say that the Employment Rights Review has been scrapped. Bottom line is, at the moment, we've got continuity and not rupture in respect of workers' rights. It may be because of the need to appeal and to keep the red wall seats on board. It may be because of the pretty brutality, brutal brutality of the regime that the TCA envisages. Thank you very much. Great, thanks very much, Catherine. So, so Peter, could we hear your response, please? Thanks, Hussein. I, 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 um, uh, I feel like I should pick up immediately there because uh, Catherine's last example, I think, points to one of the uh, absolutely fundamental parts about regulation, which is the meat and drink of Brexit. This is a brilliant report because it absolutely gets to what Brexit is in theory about. But that little example about quasi Quartain ditching the 48-hour week review just shows you the extent to which the government is in flux over what it's going to do with these newfound freedoms, which it is going to pay a significant economic price for. There's no mobility chapter in this deal. 
um, there is no veterinary agreement. Uh, both goods and services, uh, you know, in 45 odd percent of our total trade with the e is with the EU, are going to face real frictional impacts. There's going to be a lot of pain. And as the pain starts to sink in, and a lot of it's unappreciated because we haven't started our border controls on goods coming into the UK. And COVID has meant that the services chapter, um, you know, has not been impacted. When we start going on holiday, when businessmen start getting back on the road, people are going to really start to feel the fact that there's no mobility chapter in this deal. That means there's no um, uh, 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 exemption, there's no visa waiver and no paid exemption. You can do 90 within 90 days with 180, but that's hopeless if you're a tour rep or you're uh, a ski a ski chalet uh, boy or girl, or you're a band who wants to go and play in a bar in Maribel or in the Costa Brava uh, for a summer. You're going to need work permits. You're going to need to negotiate the Byzantine um, uh, 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 work permit systems of all 27 member states. And that's when regulation, which happens almost invisibly for most people, starts to become a real thing. And I think... Um, we are very conflicted about uh, 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 regulation. Uh, um, you know, Sarah was saying, you know, it's very politicized. So if you ask people, do you like Brussels red tape? They'll say, absolutely no. But if you ask people, do you want um, a bonfire of red tape on food standards? Do you want ractopamine pork or hormone raised beef? You'll say, absolutely not. And there's another example where the government started off talking big about a US trade deal and is now tacked hard back into the centre with its commission on, on, on trade and agriculture because it ran a mile from the NFU and from uh, uh, animal rights lobby groups that piled in when it became clear that those regulations, which the public value, uh, look to be in danger. So I, I would just say that you know, regulation is a kind of knotty, boring subject, but it, I think it's going to become one that more and more becomes uh, uh, front and center. So take the immigration piece. You know, do people that 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 um, what do you call them, Catherine? Scatter charts, whatever that 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 graphic was with immigration yeah. in the in in the big thing. You ask people, do you want to stop immigration? Yeah, we do. We want to keep get too many of those Bulgarians. Look at the numbers on the of Bulgarians registrations. But then you say to people, do you want a a, a British tour rep when you go on your holiday uh, to uh, to meet and greet you at the airport and to manage your campsite. An awful lot of people, when you talk to the travellers, you will say, yes, those tour reps are not going to be able to get visas under the current regime unless they apply six weeks in advance, uh, six months in advance. And that's going to completely change the industry. Then people will start to feel slightly differently about well, maybe actually we do want freer exchange of people. We don't want free movement, but do we want some kind of youth mobility scheme, for example? So those kind of dynamics are yet to play out where the government's own positions on things like mobility, which are right at the outset ideologically set against no, are going to come under constant pressure and they're going to be in flux and they're going to have to go to the EU uh, and and talk about what can be done either bilaterally with member states or with the commission to iron out some of these kinks. And if they don't want to do that, then they're going to get into a conversation with the public about where the pain is and also where the gain is. Now, that might create some interesting uh, dynamics, I think, because if the government at the moment, the government's been very cautious. But if the government is sucking up a lot of pain, if the public are sucking up a lot of pain, then the government might be more adventurous when it's considering 
what it needs to do to show gain, to attract investment, for example. So it is interesting, as Charlie says, that the government has left doors ajar. If you look at the legislation on agriculture and environment uh, and fishing, uh, they have left doors ajar to give themselves flexibility, um, depending where the politics land on regulation. And the proof will be in the pudding in how much money goes into these regulators, in, uh, in, in, in the extent to which the government uh, is prepared to uh, uh, um, stick its neck out, as it were, against special interest groups by, by changing regulations that will often attract uh, um, you know, flack from different, um, uh, from different groups. And, and how bold the government's going to be, uh, I think, is really remains to be seen, because in so many areas, the government is frankly groping around in the dark for... Um, uh, for easy wins on Brexit. You know, the Foreign Secretary is there saying, take a 10-year view. You know, if you think the Foreign Secretary was on Mars, if he had some easy wins, he'd, he'd been listing them off his fingers uh, uh, as he went. Um, so the extent to which our regulations change will depend on public interactions, I think, from, from, from uh, uh, citizens and from the media in the UK, and we're in very early stages of that. It will also depend on our interactions with the EU, but also with other trade groups. So if we're going to do this trade deal with the US, um, then we're going to have to give some big concessions on agriculture. So if we're going to accept US powdered egg that's made from battery chickens in the broiler barns of Connecticut, um, or we're going to expect, uh, going to have cheap pork, uh, which uh, is raised using ractopamine and farrowing crates that are banned in the UK, you may well see pressure to deregulate in order that UK producers can compete. So, so again, the extent to which the government changes the playing field uh, in its interactions with global trade will start to determine where lobby groups and industries land on where they want um, regulation. Now, as, uh, as I think both Catherine and Sarah said, the Brussels effect is enormous. So take a, an industry like chemicals, so the chemicals industry kicked and screamed when the EU's reach regulation came in. That was the, the big move where the EU basically said every chemical that goes on the market needs to be properly registered with the European Chemicals Agency in Helsinki in their database called REACH. And registering a chemical is not cheap. You, not, you don't just write its name down and send the envelope in. You have to do a whole load of testing and, and build data sets. You can share the costs out among others who, who, who own the data sets, but it's not cheap. The UK chemical industry uh, uh, estimates that it spent 500 million pounds formulating registrations for REACH. Now, the British government decided as it prioritized sovereignty over market access, that it was going to create its own equivalent of reach, a duplicate database essentially. So there's a cupboard in Helsinki, if you like, with all of the uh, thousands of chemical registrations in it. And the UK wants to make its own because it wants proper UK regulation. That's gonna cost a billion pounds. So the question now is, uh, you know, what state is that age, is, is UK reach in? Well, the answer is it's in its infancy. Companies have got two years to uh, 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 register chemicals that are all, they've already registered with EU reach and then I think another four years uh, I maybe it was it six in total but anyway I think six in total to provide the backup data it says that process will cost a billion pounds and the process of doing it will also make 
uh, a lot of chemical, or particularly small chemicals, uneconomic for big companies to send into the UK. They're just not the market's not big enough to do it, and that will mean UK chemical companies will have less um, will, will will have less access to the chemicals it needs, and that arguably will make them less competitive. So you put all that together, and what do you end up with? When you end up in a world where sovereign British regulation to have a British reach starts to be bad news for British chemical industry. Everything, chemicals, by the way, are not some niche industry. They go in everything from hair care to shampoo to car paints, everything that we do. Food is covered in chemicals. And so you are already seeing just recently the chemicals industry saying to the government, well, hang on, do we really need uh, to duplicate this? You know, what about all the chemicals that we've already registered with REACH? What if we basically consider them grandfathered in? We'll just send you the kind of basic you know, outside of the box registration. I and mean, let's not bother about all of this, um, uh, uh, reduplicating all of this testing because it's gonna cost us a fortune. It's not gonna achieve anything and you can do it on a risk-based approach. Now that right now is percolating through Whitehall. DEFRA, I think, are, you know, want to create this equivalent. Bayes is probably much more on the side of business from what one hears. How is that gonna play out and what does that mean for the industry. Now, this is just one little example of where you have, you know, immense uncertainty, I think, both for industry in, in business and, and, and politically, you've, you're waiting to see how this stuff plays out. So the, the, these are the, they're immensely moving targets. I mean, another example would be state aid, you know, this business of state aid. So the EU has a state aid regime. It needs that state aid regime uh, uh, in order to create a single market among 27 sovereign member states. It's actually you know, unique to the EU because the EU single market is, is unique in that regard. It's not like the US or Canada, uh, which doesn't have a formal state aid regime. Now, the UK is on its own. And as we all know, the UK stood its ground on state aid. It wouldn't accept a, a regulator that was going to be ex ante, was going to authorise state aid decisions. It wanted to be nimble and quick. It wants to be able to potentially, um, you know, do things it couldn't do under the EU regime, although it's always got to tangle with those rebalancing mechanisms that Catherine Barnard outlined so beautifully. Um, you know, will it chuck a bunch of money to try and get battery plants up and running to keep voxels, uh, you know, try and win the war over where electric vehicle supply chains? And if it does that, how quickly is it going to become entangled in the in the EU? You know, none of us actually know how quickly those committees, which you know won't start until April, how activist are those committees going to be? To what extent will a lot of this stuff go under the bridge? So the government is in a consultation on, on state aid at the moment. And when you start to talk to the lawyers, they start saying, well, actually, you know, we don't want a system whereby um, we have to go to the commission and get, you know, previous authorization. It takes months. But at the same time, we don't want a world where, um, we have no confidence that an investment is definitely not going to fall foul of a state aid case. We don't want a world where essentially we're waiting for case law to evolve out of a whole series of court challenges to state aid, because state aid on one level is sort of very simple at the extreme. So we don't do state aid that moves jobs from one place to another. And then there's another you know, area where you know, we definitely we can do state aid on things like environment or social policy if, if it's agreed. But in the middle, there's an immense gray area. And if the government actually wants to be nimble, it may find that it needs to create more of a structure, uh, more of a regulatory structure than it perhaps thought 
in order to give uh, um, investors confidence. I, you know, if I'm going to go in uh, and, 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 and subsidize a project, I don't want to do it if I fear I'm going to end up in court and, and, and my co-investors are not going to come in. So what you may find is that actually, as these things start to shake down in the real world, there's actually more appetite for regulation than perhaps the kind of Brexit mythology um, uh, 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 sort of expected. You know, and, that, and that is so often the case. You know, um, We don't want to be bound up in, in Brussels red tape as it was always described by the politicians, but you know we don't want uh, uh, um, to get food poisoning. You know we want all of those. Um, you know I used to live in China. You know I can tell you living in a world where there is you know a regulatory wild west is pretty exhausting. You don't know what you're buying in the supermarket. People in the UK do, and it doesn't take much to undermine consumer confidence. And governments get really really wary about that. Uh, and so you know I think uh, um, that. The kind of difficulty here is that actually um, we're going to have an awful lot of back and forth. Um, it's going to be an awful lot of uncertainty, an awful lot of cost for business. And a lot of the time, things won't look that different from what they did before. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that, that I think is the, is the kind of broad overview. So um, I, over to you, Hussein. Thanks very much, Peter. So, um, yeah, thank you, all, all our panelists, and thank you for asking, um, for posing your questions via Q&A. I'm just going to pick up some of the themes, and um, I think if we do a sort of quick fire round of the panelists again, um, sort of responding to some of these general and, and more specific questions, that would be that would be great. We're being asked about um, costs. Do we know how much all of this costing? Is someone keeping a tally in, inside government or not? Do we do we know if there's serious impact um, sorry, um, impact um, assessments being undertaken or um, you know, we hear reported in the press that this isn't being uh, this isn't being done because um, it would not necessarily um, show a very positive picture. But do we know if that's being if that's being done? Um, people have been pointing out uh, have been raising the issue of um, enforcement. Do we know of a, a regulatory agency which has the kind of equivalent powers of um, an EU agency, which? Um, you know, just to sort of to sort of characterise generally, an EU agency is backed by EU law, backed by the Commission, and backed by the European Court of Justice. It has a lot of teeth. It can therefore hold um, governments to account in a way that it seems it would be difficult for UK regulators to do. Do we know if there are any examples of powerful um, UK regulators? Similarly, with respect to the design of regulators, how independent are they likely to be? And you know, everything that's implied with that independent in a sort of regulatory legal sense, but independence given levels of staffing, um, budgetary uh, resource, um, expertise of staff, all those other things. Have we got any any examples that will illustrate um, um, what, the, what the sort of general picture here is? Um, there are some specific questions for Charlie. There's a question on, uh, um, on the um, admissions trading um, system. Do we know about the UK system? How effective that, that's likely to be? Um, do we know if, if carbon is going to be priced um, and do we know what the system will look like compared to the UK uh, EU system that it's going to replace? And to Catherine specifically, there's a question about, you know, um, about settled status. Is it really, um, um, how easy does government think it is to achieve, you know, to, to, you know, to go through those procedures? Um, but also you spoke about the brutality of the trade and cooperation agreement, sort of retaliatory action. I just wondered if you could sort of elaborate on that. What form will it take, and how 
how heavy, how brutal will it will it um, actually be? Um, I'll, I'm going to start off just 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 to sort of you know I suppose respond to these things you know, briefly insofar as I insofar as I can. I mean I think Peter, your discussion of the chemicals agency is a really really important one. This is emblematic in a way of the ill preparedness of UK regulation, but also the cost and the duplication. Um, because you know the billion pound uh, figure you mentioned is an example of where. Um, you know, business, business already feels it's created one system in Brussels, and now it's got to create another system in the. Um, it's got to register with another system in the UK, pay all of the costs. Um, may ultimately decide that because the UK didn't actually negotiate any kind of you know free freedom of exchange between the two systems, that it's not worth um, being registered in both markets, and making a choice about about one market or, or the other. I mean, this is something which is which is clear in in chemicals in aviation. A section that I know about, and the section in the in the report, um, in a way, the duplication is even more um, sort of you know brutal than that. It's that every single element of of you know, anything that flies, basically, whether it's pilots, aircrew, airports, um, the airlines themselves, plus all of the organisation, all the training organisations, all of that has to be licensed, certificated, approved, um, authorised. Um, and it's done in accordance with an international regime. It was all done at the EU level for all 27 countries by AASA. Now the UK Civil Aviation Authority has to do, has taken all of those responsibilities. Um, and it's not so. If you're on an airline that's operating in both markets, you've got to do this twice. Um, and it really is the same rule. It's not even a different kind of um, kind of, of of system. Um, and I don't know if Catherine, if you could pick up this. I'm, I'm, I don't know if I, um, if, if, um, if, if, if I don't know if you follow data protection at all. Uh, maybe you haven't. There's certainly a couple of chapters in um, a couple of contributions in the in the report which talk very specifically about data regulation. So by Karen um, McCulloch and by um, by um, Amelia Fletcher. So I'd encourage you to look at that. But um, there's a question about um, whether you know what the chances are actually for deviating from the GDPR. So we've got five minutes left. <laughs> we've got we've got a minute a minute each. So riff on what you, you think you can um, respond to. Um, but but please take no no more than a minute. Let's go back in, in the order in which we um, which we presented. So Charlie first, please. Um, okay. So very quickly, equivalent powers in terms of finding governance, competition, and markets authority. But that will be the only one, and that's been why that's been a big debate around the Office for Environmental Protection that it's not going to have the equivalent powers, and there's a question mark over its independence. And on ETS, the UK is setting up its own emissions trading system. Um, that is, I think, the idea is that that will then link up with the EU emissions trading system. Whether or not it's going to put an effective price on carbon is a watch this space, I think. Um, and I will finish there to let others talk on the other questions. Sarah, please. I'm sorry, just unmuting myself. So I've probably used up 10 of my 60 seconds. Sorry about that. Um, I just wanted to pick up on the um, point about the kind of um, domestic regulators and their response to this through the example of financial services, because I think we're seeing something quite interesting there where um, historically, particularly in the city of London, there's been a kind of tripartite regulatory relationship between um, the Bank of England um, the Treasury and also involving regulators like the FCA, etc. Um, what I think would be a really interesting area to watch is um, how the Bank of England grows into its role as a domestic regulator 
um, more fully without the um, oversight of, of the EU. I think there's some really interesting things happening there with a more emboldened um, Bank of England. Um, I think that's particularly interesting as well, because I think financial services is one of the sectors that the UK possibly believes and wants to become more powerful at the international level. With that, I will hand over to Catherine. Um, thank you. On settled status, um, yes, settled status is easy to get if you work um, for a university or the health service where you've got a long history of contributions to the um, inland revenue and it's all very clear. It's not the case um, with uh, those who, who are working in agriculture who have very patchy records. And crucially, in the case of Bulgarians and Romanians, um, a number of them, for various reasons, have not got passports. And COVID has exacerbated the problem because they can't go to the embassies to get passports because the embassies are closed. And all of that makes the whole practical application of this very difficult. Also, of course, this might sound blindingly obvious, but if you've got dementia, you have no idea you've got to do it. If you're a care leaver, um, you may also have no idea. And if you're in care, you might also not know what you're meant to do. Local authorities are meant to help. Some of them are, some of them aren't. In respect of the brutality of the rebalancing, it's brutal because it's very quick. It's uh, The timescales are incredibly short. Um, and while any retaliation has got to be proportionate, what you may well see is that the EU will target, for example, Scottish smoked salmon, which has the added advantage of both raising the um, very divisive issue of devolution, as well as targeting um, a rather sensitive sector. In respect of data protection, I'm not an expert on it, but I went to a fascinating talk yesterday uh, by somebody who was involved in negotiating uh, the data protection parts of the treaty. And the thing that came home, it was struck me very much yesterday from her talk, was that there is much more um, as in the TCA about um, what happens over the if the data adequacy decision is inadequate or is uh, fragile. There are extraordinary things in the treaty which you don't find in other um, free trade agreements, which are intended to catch the whole system and stabilize the system if data adequacy doesn't work. That's particularly the case in respect of law enforcement. Great, thank you very much. Um, uh, Peter, did you want to add anything or? So I literally, as, as, as Catherine was talking about smoked salmon, I see the Scottish salmon industry put out a, a, a release saying that in January alone, a Brexit's cost them £11 million, 1.5 million kilos of lost sales as a result of Brexit, 700 tonnes of unharvested fish. Um, I should add that the Norwegians are quite good at farming salmon. Um, and similarly, you know, this is about cost of regulation, ultimately, not just the cost of, you know, £650 to get a work permit to be a singer. It's about it's about the cost. So on data protection, I talked to a company that does software for prisons, bizarrely, intranet systems for prisons, for prisons to book their uh, uh, space in the workshop, etc. Right. They've just moved all of their back office um, uh, client handling businesses. They have clients in, Nor in Norway and Spain and, and France into The Hague. It's not that they, you know, we're going to get this data equivalency, um, but you know, Schrems is going to come along. There'll be a data activist case in the court. Um, for them, it's just easier and more stable to go and do it from the Hague. Just like it's probably easier and less hassle to buy Scottish buy salmon from Norway, not from Scotland. And I think this is where regulation will become um, political, and people will really start to talk not just about Brussels red tape, but about UK red tape too. 
Great. Thank you very much indeed. And um, you can find the report. It's launched. It's on the UK and Europe um, you can change your website. So if you if you search that, you'll find it's on the front page. Um, that's 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 fame at last. Um, the, the it, therein you will find the answer to the most popular question, which was, can the panelists give one example of of how our new British um, Brexit regulatory autonomy has positively developed our economy? And um, I think you'll find that there is not a, a strongly positive answer to that um, as yet. But but to be fair, it's early days. We are in COVID, so so let's see um, let's see what happens. So please, please look for um, please look for the report. You can change your website. Um, I'd like to thank all our panelists. Thank Peter um, in, um, in in particular. I'd like to thank my team, uh, Dr. Cleo um, Davis and Dr. Pippa Lacey, the team at UK and Changing Europe, particularly Ben, Martha, and Phoebe, and especially the contributors to the report. Above all, thank you for joining us um, today to launch this report. Thank you very much. <laughs>